0: We are studying your favorite book in the Bible, Deuteronomy, a book that Moses wrote. A book that Moses wrote to people who had just come out of slavery for over 400 years. And they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. And they're tired. And they have a major decision to make whether they are going to obey the Lord and face a battle like never before in their lives after having passed through the Jordan River at flood stage, invading a land that is fortified and has people who are giants in the land. They know because they've spied it out. It's a terrifying prospect to which God is calling them, and they're deciding whether they're going to fight this battle or not. And Moses has a little speech for him. In fact, he has three major speeches, as you can see from the outline of Deuteronomy. And we're at the beginning of the first speech. And we've seen that all of Moses' speech really fits a covenant treaty form that was current in his own day, which is to express that we have a relationship with God. He's the sovereign king, and we've been made his vice presidents, his vice regents on the earth to carry out his will. Moses is reminding them of that. And it's a very important for us because you can take your life and in, in some ways your life consists of a series of decisions that you've been making. And your next period of life will be defined by a series of decisions that you're going to make. Some of those are major decisions like should I marry her or not? That's a big one. That scares the bejabbers out of you. Uh, you know how you feel. You just stay up all night. You know, tomorrow night you're supposed to take her out and give her the ring. And that's just unbelievable moment of making a decision that has a lot of risk to it, a lot of downside risk. Uh, some of you have been in battle. And the night before, you know, it's a restless sleep uh, uh, that you have. And it's kind of quiet. And everybody's realizing, you know, our lives can... Uh, be at risk in what's going to happen in the morning. You get up before the crack of dawn and enter the battle. At the risk of your own life, you have a major decision to make. Are you going to be a coward or are you can be a hero? There are really only two, two things you can do. You've got a major decision, but to be a hero, you run a substantial risk of losing it all. Some of you have left very secure jobs and you went out on your own. Some of you said, that's the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. But some of you, Did extremely well at it, but you know, when you did it, it was scary because the downside risks are significant. You too could have had, could have been one of the hundreds of thousands of business failures every decade in America. (laughs) Just line right up and get in the line with those people who've gone out on their own and have failed. It's a great risk that you do things like that. Uh, Some of you have made major investments. I'm talking about big investments. And for most of us, The biggest investment we make is our house. You know how you feel before you buy a house? Oh, let's check it all out. I want to be sure I know what's wrong with it. Oh, I don't know. Am I paying too much? I mean, uh, my friends in the real estate business tell me that uh, everybody's worst behavior comes out when they're buying a house (laughs) because it's the biggest investment that a lot of people make in their lives. And all of our fears and trembling comes out during those times. So we know that we face major decisions and the ones that are Really, the important ones are the ones that have significant downside risk. And the reason this is so important for us because eventually, guys, every one of us is going to be coming to the end of our lives. And you, you have a decision to make how you're going to face that. Are you going to face it with a stiff upper lip? Are you going to face it whimpering? Are you going to face it with a sense of triumph because you believe that the Lord's going to take you through the Jordan River and can take you into the promised land? You have a decision to make. But how you're going to frame that up in your mind. And actually, every one of us is to be framing that up right now so that when we get to that point, it's no big switch for us. It's no big change of paradigm. We've already been dying every day in our mind. We've already prepared ourselves. We all have that big decision to make, how we're going to face that. But what's interesting when you go to the Gospels is that Jesus actually presents that kind of choice to us when He calls us to follow Him. Here's what he says about following him. He says, if any man will follow me, he must take up his cross. We've heard that word so many times. We've seen so many crosses on the wall. We don't even think about what the cross means. Guys, that is an ugly form of execution. It's like any man who wants to follow me must take up his electric chair and come follow me. You say, what in the world? Electric chair. What are you? What kind of business is this? Yeah, that's exactly... You're asking the right question for a change. All right, what kind of business is this? Here's the business. When you follow Him, you come and die. It's like the night before battle, you're deciding whether you're going to give your life up for the sake of gaining everything. And that is the call to follow Jesus. And it's not just the first time you walked down the aisle and gave your made your public profession of faith. And some of you never made a public profession of faith. Some of you haven't made that decision yet. And this is what it is. This is the reason it's so awesome because when you follow Him, you die to a lot of things. You die to your own self-centered life. And the downside risk, I mean, if you're wrong, if Jesus is wrong, if the Gospels are wrong, if the Bible's not true, you're an idiot. (laughs) That's basically what the Bible says. You are of all people most to be pitied. If this is false, because you have given up all the women you could sleep with, all the drugs you could experiment with, all the self-centered ways in which you could spend your estate. You've given all that up. You're an idiot. If it's not true. But if it's true, the upside risks, I mean, the upside game is infinitely glorious so you're facing a choice when you follow Jesus Christ, and it's the choice you face every day, every moment of your life. When you're when you're in your business and guys are going to be doing something that's just a little shady, you've got a decision to make. Am I going to risk my popularity and my place in the pecking order of this business by confronting the situation? Or am I going to go along with the trend and run the risk of Failing Jesus Christ and His calling on my life. You've got that decision all the time. And it's a decision between life and death. But it's the opposite of the way your flesh feels. It feels like you're dying when you lose face in front of your friends. But actually you're dying because you're losing what God has for you in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, the one who lives is the one who dies. The one who dies is the one who lives. He dies to himself. He lives To God and lives forever and really we get it all back but when you're at that point of decision you haven't experienced it you don't know it's all going to come back to you I remember when I was making the decision to follow Christ over 30 years ago that's a scary thing you're leaving behind the way you've been living in my case for 25 years and I'm going to go come and take another way of life another lord of my life instead of myself that's scary Now, that's exactly what the people of Israel are facing on the east side of the Jordan. They're being called to go into something that is very scary. It's a major decision in their lives. They can be cowards or heroes. They can gain everything or they can lose everything. And that's the reason Moses is giving this grand farewell speech right before he dies. Now, we've looked at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, realizing that what we're doing is we're looking at the prologue uh, and the, the first part of the uh, historical prologue that he's giving the people. And remember in this covenant treaty form that covers all of Deuteronomy, the first part of it is to introduce the characters. Who are you and who am I? God is speaking. He's going to tell us who he is and who you are. And the reason for this prologue, this historical prologue, is to remind us whether we should trust this person who's talking to us or whether we should fear him or whether we should do what he says or not. So the king, the suzerain king is reminding us of why we should do what he says. And so he's recounting their experience in the wilderness. And I'll just pick up with a story in verse 19. And I think we ought to probably read through verse 33 for now. Let's look at verse uh, 19. Then... We set out from Horeb, and Horeb is Mount Sinai where they received the law. We set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the, God, the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. Now that's, that's where we're going to be today in this historical prologue. We're going to talk about Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The things seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eschol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Let's stop there. Now turn back for just a moment to uh, page 327 in the introduction. Let's, Let's look here at the map. Mount Horeb is actually not on this map. It's south of this map. You see the little arrow in the bottom left that says to Mount Sinai. So you go down a ways there not too far, to get to Mount Horeb. So they traveled up from Mount Horeb, uh, undoubtedly along the Red Sea there. Uh, And that's not the Red Sea that was divided uh, on their way from Egypt. This is a different Red Sea. And they went up to Elath. See, there, just on the north of the Red Sea. Then they traveled northwest up to Kadesh Barnea, uh, up in the Negev. And from Kadesh Barnea, it's an easy entrance. Uh, into the Holy Land. And uh, the way coming in from Kadesh Barnea, one would suspect would probably be militarily uh, the easiest way to come in. You have some significant mountains you can see on the west side of the Dead Sea. And there are mountains, of course, uh, you know, a significant elevation, maybe 2,500 feet from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So those hills are significant. But if you come up, from Kadesh Barnea, it's a little flatter. I don't know if you've been there, but it's, uh, it's, it's elevated. You know, it's up a bit from the Dead Sea, of course, but it's a plain, uh, rolling hills, and would be much easier. So the Lord led them, and it took 11 days, we're told, from Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. And here they are at Kadesh Barnea, and here's their, their opportunity. And, of course, this is 38 years before this moment in Deuteronomy 1. Uh, This is 38 years ago. Moses is reminding them what happened. God took them for 11 days. They've been in the wilderness now about two years, and they're getting ready to attack now from Kadesh Barnea. So let's look at, first of all, these first three verses. And I want us to see basically what's happening here, and that is that God calls us to take possession of our possessions. It's really simple. If you're a follower of Christ, he's saying, take hold of what I've given you. Take possession of your possessions. You'll find this phrase, take possession, I think about 23 times in Deuteronomy where God is clearly saying to them, I want you to take what I'm giving to you. And gentlemen, it's amazing what God has given us. Just think of the things he promises us. He says, first of all, I'm going to be with you. Well, take that. Appropriate it. Talk to him. He's there. Take possession of your possessions. He says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, if you just commune with me, I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you light for your path. Take possession of your possessions. He says that if you follow me, I'm going to give you joy. I'm going to give you peace. Take possession of your possessions. He says, "I'm, I'm going to give you the ability to live in relationship with other people in the right way. Take possession of your possessions. He says, I'm going to show you all the way to get to heaven itself, the new heavens and the new earth, and I'm going to take you right through the valley of death. I'm going to take you right through the veil of death. Take possession of your possessions. And so often guys will get up and they'll say, oh, I want to be a Christian and make a profession of faith in church, and they just wander around like everybody else. They have no idea of the possessions that they have. They have no idea of the estate that's been given to them, and they're acting as though they're impoverished. Instead of acting as though they're people who have a land of milk and honey, and God is simply saying, take possession of the land. Uh, For example, leave your finger there in Deuteronomy, and we'll be roaming around the Bible a little bit today. But turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and that would be page 2262. And look at what Paul says in his introduction to the people. Now he has a lot of ethical things to say about them and to them in chapters four through six, but look how he begins. He says in verse three, this is ephesians one three on page twenty two sixty two "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every." spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He doesn't say, will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says, who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has unloaded heaven and poured out blessings upon us. Uh, and you find this when Paul was in his deepest moment of distress. I haven't listed the verse here, but in 2 Corinthians 2, Twelve, nine, and 10, Paul has this thorn in the side, as he calls it. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's really distracting him. He calls out to the Lord three times to be delivered from this thorn, whatever it is, in his side. And the Lord answers him, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, well, therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses all the more because when I am weak, he is strong. His grace is sustaining me. And his grace did sustain Paul until Paul finished his ministry, and his life all the way through. We have to learn sometimes how to appropriate this incredible blessing and series of blessings that God has given us. So take hold of your possessions. Now notice, first of all, the reason we can take hold of it is because the land is God's to give. The blessing is God's to give. He's not God's not giving you something he doesn't own. He owns it. He can do with it what he wants to. He has every spiritual blessing in his hands. And if he wants to pour it out upon his sons, he can flat do it. And that's exactly what he's doing. The land is his. And God is saying, that piece of territory over there, just uh, west of the Jordan and east of the Mediterranean, in fact, it even larger than that, that piece of land up there, I'm declaring it's holy. It's consecrated. It's set apart. And I'm going to put my people there. It's going to be a holy land with a holy people. And it's going to be a holy place. And I'm going to dwell there with them. That's the big game plan. God has a perfect right to do that. He owns every square inch of this universe. And if he wants to lay aside something for us, he can flat do it. And that's exactly what he did. Notice that he also has the moral right to do it. We can read in other places how the sins of the Amorites had stunk up heaven itself. The the fumes of their, uh, of their disobedience and their outrageous immorality had gone up before heaven and God had had enough. So the very... It was a two edged sword. He was blessing his people and he was also judging those who had turned their back on him. That's what the Holy Land was all about. God owns the land. He can do with it what he wants. Let me tell you what God is going to destroy this earth, the Bible says, and he's going to bring back a new heavens and the new earth, and he completely owns that. He can put in that land whatever he wants, and he can put in that land whomever he wants. It's his call to make, and his call is he's got a place for his people. We're not going to be nomads forever. We're not going to be pilgrims forever. We're going to get home. He owns it. The land is His to give. He said, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God is giving us. He owns it, not the Amorites. He owns Russia, not the Russians. He owns China, not the Chinese. He owns America, not the Americans. Not even the Native Americans. God owns it. Secondly, notice the land is ours to take. And the reason is simple. He simply, God has commanded it. He says, go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. God doesn't tell us to take possession of something that doesn't belong to us. And when He tells you to take possession of peace, take possession of love, take possession of joy, take possession of the new heavens and the new earth, you're not a thief. You are taking what He actually has given you as your inheritance. If your father... Uh, earthly father leaves you a million dollars you say oh no i can't take that that's not mine oh yes it is oh yes it is take it you're an idiot if you don't take it you can give it away if you want to but first take it and then give it away because your father has a right to give you an inheritance and if your earthly father has a right to give you what he wants believe me your heavenly father has a right to do it and that's the reason that god has said uh, do not fear or be dismayed. He has forbidden us to fear and to dismay. Now, this commandment, not to fear, I didn't count them. Just, there are just too many of them. I mean, scores and scores of time, times in the Bible when God says to His people, it's probably the most common thing God ever says to His people, do not fear. He'll say it in the next book of the Bible to Joshua. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Here's the reason. I'm going with you. He commands us not to fear because when we fear, we think something else or somebody is more awesome than God. We think that God is just one of the many players and God might take up for us or He might not. And if God's in a bad mood, then some other guy is going to be able to take us out. I don't know what we're thinking. But that's something bad is happening when we get afraid. It's bad theology. Now, I know we all have different nervous systems, and some of us just easily are rattled. We just, you know, our mama didn't give us good nerves. Sorry about that. I'm not talking about your nerves. I'm talking about where your mind is. Get a hold of your mind. What do you believe? Who do you believe is great? Who do you believe is awesome? Who do you believe alone is to be worshiped? Who do you believe is subject to, to the one God, everybody. So why would you fear men? And this is one of the key things that Jesus teaches us. You'll see this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, look, let me, let me Jesus is saying, let me tell you about the most awesome being in the universe, or the second most awesome being in the universe. His name is Satan. I give Satan permission every once in a while to wipe people out. Check the book of Job sometimes I give Satan the authority actually to kill somebody. And that could be you. But he says, these are Wilson words, this is not Jesus' words. Now I'm getting to the Jesus words. He says, don't fear the one who can kill you, but rather fear the one who can kill you and then throw you in hell. The devil can't throw you in hell. He can only kill you. So why fear him? If you take the extent of heaven, you've ever thought about this? It's it's eternal. It never never ends. Mathematically, what's the comparison with the life on this earth? I believe it comes down to zero, doesn't it? Anything compared to infinity turns into zero. So you needn't fear someone who's got control of zero. Fear the, the one who's got control of infinity. And God is saying... He's basically saying the devil, even the devil, your most awesome adversary, only can function under my hand and under my will. He can't do anything to you that I do not intentionally allow him to do. I don't perpetrate it. I don't originate evil. He does that. But I control evil. And I particularly control it for the welfare of my sons. And that's the way he's got this entire universe. He has the whole world in his hands. And he's orchestrating this entire world so that you end up with it. He's a father who wants his sons to inherit his entire estate. And everything he does is with that purpose in mind. So please, brethren, for heaven's sakes, claim your possessions. Trust in the Lord. Do not fear what others can say to you or do to you. We let ourselves get bound up in an earth-bound environment. We just think about our little household, our little job, my little car, my little church, my little this. And we want everything to be orchestrated just right in the here and the now in this little space of time, in this little neighborhood. God has a cosmic plan for you. And it's much bigger, as C.S. Lewis says, than the mud pies you're making in the middle of the road. Kids making mud pies have no idea of what it means to go take a holiday at the beach. So they're happy with their mud pies. And we're making mud pies and we do not realize what the Lord has stored up for us. So that's the challenge. And God is calling us always to take possession of our possessions all the time. And that's the reason he has to say it over and over again because we're disinclined to do so, which leads us to the next point, which we've read about in verses 22 through 33. We sometimes fail to obey. I guess I should say we often you can, if you want to, just strike the word sometimes out and put the word often. We often fail to obey. We often fail to take possessions. And why? Well, we don't receive because we don't follow. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, follow me, believe in me, and I will give you life. Come unto me and I will give you rest. You want to know why we fail to receive our possessions? Because we don't follow Him and we don't come to Him every day and every moment. (laughs) Notice first of all what we do when we fail. First of all, we want to check it out. Uh, Let's check this thing out. Let's do a little investigation. Well, I'm all for investigation. Before I became a Christian, I investigated. After I became a Christian, I investigated. Sometimes, however, I really investigate because I'm afraid. And I would suggest to you that's the reason these folks investigated, because they were afraid. They said, uh, let us uh, send some men ahead of us. They can explore the land. They'll find the best angle of attack. They'll be able to spy out the fortifications of the enemy. And we can have the most intelligent battle plan that man has ever seen for these spies. And sometimes that is just a ruse for us. It's a ruse. it's It's a disguise, a mask of just lack of trust in the Lord. And, of course, we see this several times. You see it with Moses who had all kinds of excuses. Well, Lord, what if they don't know who you are? Well, Lord, who will I tell them I am? Well, Lord, uh, Pharaoh's big boy. <laughs> you know, we've got all kinds of excuses. And you find it with Gideon, don't you? Lord, uh, just one little thing. If I put this fleece out here, would you make the dew fall here and the dew not fall there? Uh, if, if that happens, I'll, uh, uh, yeah, I think I'll believe you. We try to give the Lord something impossible to prove. You know, <laughs> so, Lord, I'll be nice to my wife if uh, my breakfast comes down out of heaven. This morning, and that's the way we are when we're unbelieving. We we have many many ways to pretend that what we're really being is intelligent, and that's exactly what the Israelites did. This is, this is an ancient ruse. But then look what God does in verses twenty three through twenty five. He accommodates our weaknesses. Moses says, "This thing seemed good to me." It's amazing how, if you'll look at when Moses is making his excuses, look how the Lord actually condescends to enter into a conversation. Well, now Moses, so you stutter a little bit, boy. Is that right? Well, Moses, let me ask you a question. Who gave you that mouth? <laughs> and Moses said, Oh Lord, I I don't talk good. He said, Okay, all right, I'll give you. See your brother Aaron, he'll be like you're my prophet. He'll be your prophet. So I'll speak to you. You speak to Aaron. Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. That's amazing. God, God could have, I mean, God did finally get angry at Moses, okay? And Moses finally got the message, but God will, will take our weaknesses and our little ways of doing things and our excuses. It's amazing how kind and gracious he is. And he's doing that again with us this morning. You have some decisions to make, some ethical choices to make even today. And here we are again studying the Bible, and we've been making excuses all of our life. And here's God again, tugging at you, dealing with you accommodating you, condescending. He's amazing. I, and I'm so grateful. If he didn't do that, I'd be long gone. And you find the same thing with Gideon. What did the Lord do? He played the game just as Gideon asked it. Just as he asked it. And then, and then after the Lord answered in one way, Gideon says, well, Lord, now why don't we, let's try something. Why don't you do the opposite tomorrow night? I'll put it out and see if you just put the do over here and not the do over here. And let's see if that works. And the Lord condescended again. So find see here that Lord the Lord is reminding us, look I didn't reject you at your first childish impetuous comment you ever made to me. No, I've worked with you, and He's reminding these people before the night before the big battle. I've worked with you. I've been kind with you, and He has with us. Notice thirdly what we often do: we just dig in deeper. <laughs> And, he, and the Lord Moses says to them, "But you wouldn't go up anyway." Verses twenty six through twenty eight. He says, "You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you murmured in your tents." And that word "murmur" occurs over and over again in the account in Numbers thirteen and fourteen about Kadesh Barnea. You'll find the word "murmuring," "grumbling," over and over again. This is what we start doing. I remember. We had we had good food in Egypt. Yeah. We had leeks and onion and we had meat and we, man, we had it made. And you were slaves. What are you talking about? These people would try to build this glorious historical past. They were great people, had plenty of provisions. No, they didn't. But that's what you do when you murmur. Oh, it was really great before, you know. And look at this generation. You know, when we were kids, and just murmur, 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 complain, complain, complain. And that's that's what these people were doing. They were complaining, of course, against Moses and Aaron and Miriam, and they tried to overthrow them because their big problem was poor leadership. You know, the preaching was weak. That was a problem with the church. You knew I'd get that one in. And so they were going to rebel against Moses and Aaron and Miriam. But really, what Moses said to them oh, time out. You're not rebelling against me. I'm just the Lord's slob. You know, I'm the mediator who's put in the middle of this thing. He said, You're rebelling against the Lord. That's your problem. So what happens is, let's look at the dynamics of disobedience. It's helpful to examine this because, I mean, doggone it, we're just the same way. These are our people. We act just like them. Number one, our doubt turns into distrust. And you said, because the Lord hated us. Can you imagine that? (laughs) The Lord hated us. That's the reason he brought us out of Egypt. He wanted to bring us out here and make a spectacle out of us and just wipe us all out together himself. He didn't want Pharaoh to have the privilege. He wanted to do it himself. I mean, this is the kind of craziness people get into when they doubt. You begin to distrust you see the dynamics of it. It starts with doubting what he says about himself, doubting the historical record of what he's done, and then you start to distrust him and think, you know what? I think maybe he's my enemy. And we get paranoid. Let me ask you to leave your finger there again and turn over to Matthew chapter 25, and this would be on page 1876. 1876, Matthew chapter 25. And this is a familiar parable. But I want you to notice something about it this morning. If you'll, look in, if you'll look in verse 14, you'll see how the story begins. You know, the Lord gave one guy five talents. He gave one guy two talents. He gave one guy one talent. The five talent and the two talent guys, they invested and did very well with their investment. And, in fact, doubled their money. If you look in verse 20, when the master returns, he he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your master. Now would you please notice that the words in verse 23 are identical to the words in verse 21. In other words, it doesn't matter how many talents you have. The Lord measures what you do with what you have. He's not comparing you uh, to uh, you know, the guy who owns, has a billion dollars. Oh, well, he's important. He gives all this money away to help poor people in Asia or whatever. What can I do? I just, I just have a regular old job, you know. He doesn't he do the, God doesn't think like you and I do. He looks at the two-talent guy and the five-talent guy exactly the same way, and he rewards them exactly the same way for what they did. So it doesn't matter. Other people think it matters. You might think it matters. It doesn't matter to God. But now look at the the main reason we're looking at this is for the one-talent person. If you look at verse 24, you get the message. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, you scattered no seed. Wow. And he says he hid his talent in the ground. He didn't even put it in a bank to get interest. Why? If you notice this, this why here, why do we not invest our talents? Because we really think God is a pretty hard ruler. That Yeah, He's going to get the one that gets all the glory at the end. There's not going to be really much in it for us. It's His vineyard. He owns the heavens and the earth. It's all His. Why do I want to be His slave? And really it turns out to this. The reason we don't invest is because we think He's a hard man. He reaps where he does not sow; he collects where he didn't, where, where someone else is doing all the work. That's what's wrong with us when we're not faithful men—that we really have bad theology. We don't think of God as being very gracious. Leave your finger there because we're going to come back in just a second. But notice this: our distrust then turns into fear. Look, leave your finger in Matthew because we're coming back. But in Deuteronomy. Uh, you'll notice what's said in verse 28 that our brothers have made our hearts melt. So, when we don't trust the Lord, what happens to our hearts? They become fearful. Remember now, starts with doubts about his kindness, turns into distrust toward him. Now that we don't trust him, we think he's a hard man, we, we don't trust him, now we turn fearful. So you want to know where your fear is coming from? You're not trusting Him because you doubt His kindness. That's the dynamics of disobedience. Now turn back to Matthew and let's finish out this story. Look at verse 25. Well, the the end of verse 24, He says, uh, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was what? Afraid. Same dynamic. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Thank you a lot. I'm giving you get back to you. You have no complaint, he says. Here's your property back. Here's my complaint. You misjudge me as your master. You thought I had no reward for my servants. And so you got afraid. So this is exactly what happened to these folks at Kadesh Barnea. Fear is actually what God inflicts on our enemies. If you turn to chapter 2, verse 25 in Deuteronomy, you'll see that's exactly what He says happens. He inflicts fears, uh, fears upon our enemies. That fear is actually God's curse upon our enemies. So when we become afraid, distrusting Him, we're actually possessing the curse that belongs to non-family members instead of blessing the, the blessing of confidence that belongs to those who follow Him. So you see what we do. God calls us uh, to enter and take our possessions, and we often fail to obey. Notice that we not only dig in deeper, but when we do, God confronts us. Look at verses 29 through 31. Then God says to us, and look what He says. First of all, do not be in dread or afraid of them. That is, God is greater than our adversaries. He who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. Once again, any rational person would be terrified of Satan unless he had been introduced to his master and his father who is God, who is more powerful than Satan. God is greater than our adversaries. We must always remember that. Secondly, God actually goes before us. The Lord your God who goes before you. So. We're not deists who believe that God made the world and then just let it run off like a watchmaker makes a clock and lets it tick its time out. No, God is personally engaged with His creation. He made the heavens and the earth and then He personally relates to it. He daily, moment by moment, nanosecond by nanosecond, governs and sustains the universe. And particularly with His people, He's constantly protecting us. You have no idea of the angels that surround you that the power of the Spirit is guarding you today, that the cloud by day and the fire by night is surely as much with you as it was with the children in the wilderness. God has garrisoned an entire army of heaven's host to guard and protect you to get you home safely. And God is saying, do you not realize I'm greater than Satan and I'm walking with you? And that's the reason He doesn't destroy you. Because you may be terrified by Him, but He's terrified by me. And he sees me with you. And that's the reason that when the disciples, right before the ascension of Jesus, they were on a Deuteronomic moment. They were on the border, just like those people were on the border, thinking whether they were going to go in and take what God commanded them to take. They were sitting there in Galilee, and they were on the border of Galilee and the world. And their mission was to go into all the world, every ethnic group, What happens when you go into every ethnic group in the world and tell them they're sinners and they need a Savior? They kill you. It's exactly what they did to the apostles. They knew this was a mission of death. And God tells them, Christ tells them to go into all the world. Why did they do it? Because of the very last line in the Gospel of Matthew. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's nothing more valuable than having Him with you because He's with you in this life to the death, And He's with you through the death and into the next life. He never leaves you. And that's what He's saying here. Guys, do you not remember that you could look at those giants and we were still telling you to go because God is greater than those giants and God is with you and He's not with them in the same way? This is what what followers of Jesus need to be hearing all the time. When we get a mission from Him, when you get your orders from Him, He doesn't send you into the battle without Himself. He goes with you. He goes before us. Thirdly, God fights for us. Not only does He go with us into the battle, gentlemen, He does all the fighting. Look, can you remember... Let's just turn over to, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is page 521. Here you have David facing Goliath. Goliath, nine feet tall, making fun of the Israelites challenging anybody to come out and fight him, making fun of them, making fun of their God. And David had six older brothers in battle and they were like everybody else were sitting around eating popcorn thinking, well, maybe somebody will come up and take care of this guy or maybe God will send a bowl of lightning or something. And David is just bringing them food from his father Jesse and he sees what's going on and he is incensed. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who thinks that he can stand up and defy the armies of Israel? And you say, well, I'll tell you who this uncircumcised is. He's nine feet tall. That's who he is. And who are you, you little shrimp? You know, you're circumcised, but you're a shrimp. That's what the brothers were saying. Once again, it's a Wilson translation. Sorry about that. But then look at the language. First of all, look at the bottom of page 520. This would be verse, uh, um, let's look at uh, verse 33. And this is King Saul. He's trying to talk David out of it. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. You're a kid, and he has been a man of war from his youth. This guy's a seasoned veteran. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took up a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. I think Saul must have just been laughing and snickering. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. What could Saul say? But go and the Lord be with you. If the Lord is the one who delivers son, you're going to need him because you can't deliver him. The Lord be with you. And then look what happens. He engages the battle, verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? (laughs) Who are you trying to kill, a dog or a human being? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said, Get me out of here, I'm terrified. I don't want to do this. This is too scary. No. No. Little David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Gentlemen, that's the point. There's a God in the church. There's a God among the disciples, the men who trust in Him. There's a God here. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. He doesn't save with neutron bombs and Star Wars. No, for the battle is the Lord's. And He will give you into our hand. Now, I call that confidence. (laughs) Who is this little shrimp? Listen to this talk. Notice he is not talking about himself. He doesn't say, hey, Goliath, you got that big rod there, huh? That big heavy. I couldn't pick that thing up. But let me tell you what I got. I got a little stone, and I'm really good at throwing it, and I can put it right through your helmet into your forehead and kill you. Ha-ha. <laughs> he didn't say a bit of that. That's not his speech. He said, there's a God, and that God will direct me. and He'll direct all of Israel, and he's going to fail you. And, of course, we know what happens. He did. Took one of his five smooth stones, whoom, 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 shoom, hit the man right there. He went, plunk. <laughs> the bigger they are, the louder they fall. And he chopped off his head with Goliath's big sword. He might have had some help just to pick the thing up. And he chopped off Goliath's head and took it to a hill. And many scholars suggest that hill was actually Calvary. And he put that head of Goliath up on a a stick. And then, of course, we know a thousand years later, the Lord Jesus Christ died on that hill. And on that hill, it looked like Jesus died. It looked like Jesus was defeated. But what He did was He slayed Goliath for you. He took him out. You have nothing to fear. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. And Moses reminded these people of that because... He said he could have said to them here. Let me tell you about the Red Sea. Forget Kadesh Barnea for a moment. Do you remember the Red Sea? You came up to the Red Sea and you had the Red Sea here that you couldn't cross. You had the blood-thirsty Egyptians right behind you, and you started. That's where you started grumbling. And you remember what the Lord did? He he took the fire and he moved it around over here and put the cloud between you and the Egyptians so they couldn't come through. And he divided the Red Sea. And you went through, and here's what he said said to you at that time. Be still and watch the Lord win the battle. And that's exactly what you did. You, You didn't fight a thing. You didn't pick up one sword. You just did what he said to do. You just obeyed him. And he fought the battle. Gentlemen, that's what Jesus Christ is saying to you. Come, follow me. I'll fight your battle for you. Your only job, get it, your only job is trust me, which means you'll do what I say. And I'll fight the battle for you and I'll finish it up the way it needs to be finished up. If you get killed, that's not the end of the day. You you guys keep springing back. You get killed and you come right back. And he said, that's what I'm going to do for you. You don't have to even worry about death because I'm going to take care of it. I got that covered. I can handle that. So all you need to do is listen to me, trust me, and do what I would say. So he fights for us. And then basically he's saying, just check the record out. Now, here... That, that doesn't seem to do it, doesn't seem to convince anybody because Moses says, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. In spite of clear evidence to support what Moses was saying, the people still didn't do it. So God disciplines us. And we're gonna, I'm just going to have, because of time, just mention this, but God disciplines us for our good. His discipline issues from His character. We don't have time to look at that, but let's look at three things of His character. His wrath, His sovereignty, and His grace. Our God gets angry, He is in charge, and He loves you intensely. And even His anger is directed to build you up. Even His discipline of you is meant to build you up because His anger, which comes against your sin, actually purges you of your sin over time and builds you up as a faithful son. But that discipline comes out of his own character. He's not impetuous. He's not arbitrary. He's not capricious. He's very intentional and he's very steady. He is wrathful. He is sovereign. He is uh, infinitely gracious. Then notice that his discipline actually is a saving function. His discipline saves his people. He says, and as for your little ones, they shall go in there. So they were disciplined by not allowing that generation to go into the Holy Land, but the children did. Once again he's saving his people. We belong to an entire people and it, one generation may face some discipline for the Lord, from the Lord for the sake of the next generation. And you can decide whether you want to be the disciplined generation or the generation that receives the benefits of discipline. But that's exactly what he does because his discipline is for our good. And his discipline develops our character and I'd especially commend to you Hebrews chapter 12, which we had time to unpack that today that the Lord disciplines those He loves, not those He hates. You say He hates you, Israelites, but actually He loves you and that's the reason He disciplined you. Now lastly, we sometimes fail to submit to His discipline. We just keep failing. And how do we do that? Well, we offer insincere repentance. We have sinned against the Lord. Yeah, like a bunch of sociopaths who are really sorry for what they did because they got caught or because the consequences were were burdensome. I'm really sorry I sinned because my wife's now angry at me and she won't fix my breakfast anymore. That's the reason I'm I'm sorry. That's called sociopathic repentance. It's repentance based on the consequences, not repentance because you grieved the Lord of your heart. And then it was presumptuous. They said, we sinned against the Lord. And then after the Lord says, you can't go fight them, you're going to be put back in the wilderness. They say, no, we ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord commanded us. It reminds us of the sons of Sceva. You remember Paul was casting out demons and, and all kinds of miracles. And there was a Jewish priest who had seven sons. And they said, man, we'd like to do that. And so they went up to people and said, in the name of Jesus, you know, be healed. And the demon came out of the man and said, Paul I know, Jesus I know, who the heck are you? And jumped all over him, beat him up, and ran him out of the house. Presumption. You think you can just do something because you want to do it. And that's what the Israelites do. Here's their repentance. They're really sorry for the consequences. Now they're going to take charge, take the bull by the horns, and do it themselves without the Lord. Forget that. God is not fooled. Do not go up to fight. I'm not in your midst, he says to them. But they learn the hard way just like we do. And the Amorites chased them all over the place and so you remain at Kadesh many days. It's a sad story when we do not listen to the Lord. But gentlemen, I'll close with this. It ends here in this part. It looks rather negative, doesn't it? Failure after failure. What's the point? Why is God reminding them of their failure? Here's why. Because He's got them 38 years later in a place to take the promised land. Duh! Yeah, they failed. And look where they are now, at the point of success. That's the whole point. You look back on your failures not to feel badly about yourself. You look back on your failures to feel grateful to God because He still has you on the point of success. He still has you ready to go in and take possession of your possessions, not because you're so cool, not because you're so obedient, not because you're so holy, because He is infinitely faithful and good. That's why. So they're at the point remembering what they did 38 years later, what their fathers did 38 years later in Kadesh Barnea. Don't forget Kadesh Barnea either for two reasons. Number one, don't do that again. Number two, remember if you do, God's going to catch you anyway. That's the preamble to God's covenant with His people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing faithfulness. We come up with all kinds of excuses and strategies to avoid the heart of what you command us to be and to do. And Lord, you're still there with us. We can hardly believe it. Here you are again, making us successful in the midst of our failures. What is this all about? It's about you, about your faithfulness. And we leave this place worshiping you through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, chance.